And once again, I forgot that. Okay, that's it. It's working. Oh, well, we'll get started here. Jim is not here, and uh, so uh, I'll just do some reading tonight instead of Jim. But uh, I'll read you uh, Psalm 119, verses 105 through uh, 112. We always start with the 119th Psalm, but we'd be here all night if we read the whole thing. So we'll just read that. What's that? Yep, none. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, I pray, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and meet together in uh, this church and uh, just to uh, fellowship and to read your word, to study it, and to uh, share in all of your goodness. And Lord, if uh, there's one thing that we could do, it would be to just praise you just endlessly with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our bodies and strengths and we just ask that uh, you give us the, the uh, ability to do that. If you take everything else away from us and we lay in a pit of despair, just give us enough strength to praise you. And with that, we'll be, we'll be pleased, Lord. And uh, Lord, there are people that are out there traveling that are uh, normally here, and we would pray for them that they would be okay and that uh, they'd get back here safely. And uh, for those that uh, are doing other things, we pray for whatever they're doing, that they would remember to honor you in it. And Lord, um, uh, special prayer for somebody named Marina, who this morning heard the gospel and has to make a decision about that. And we would pray that she would make the right one and that she would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And you know, uh, each person that is either here or that is uh, maybe watching online that has a trouble or a trial or a pain or a financial problem or whatever it is that's hindering them from being able to uh, give you their highest praise and uh, search them out, Lord, and and respond according to your wisdom and I'm sure that they will praise you for relieving them of whatever it is and uh, leading them back to the place where they can uh, respond to you in a wonderful way. Lord, we uh, once again commit this uh, Bible study to you and we ask that uh, you just guide us, keep us from uh, fault in our doctrine and uh, keep us on the steady and straight path and thank you for this wonderful book of Romans. Lord, we do love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, let's see here. Um, I think we're in the book of Romans still. Almost done with it. But um, let's see here. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 is where we're going to start today. And let's see here. Romans, I got my notes. Got my notes. Romans 1, 20. Uh, let's see. Hello, how are you? Welcome, welcome. Uh, let's see here. For uh, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. All right, uh, we've got to go back a little bit just to keep it in context. Um, I'll start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then we come to today's verse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible visible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And uh, as I said, you know, without even getting into the... Uh, the notes. I uh, talked to somebody about the Lord this morning, and uh, she she understood perfectly. You know, I, do you believe in a God? And, oh, yes, I believe there's a God. So people understood just from what is created that there must be a God, and it's instilled in us anyways. We, we God has not left us with a vacuum of not knowing there's a mosquito and he's going to be eating me all night, and I missed him. Anyway, um, uh, we, we don't have a vacuum as to whether we need to know if there's a God. We do know it, and we actually have to suppress that knowledge out of us. And um, just as a point of, before I get into these notes, as a point of how to talk to some people. If you talk to somebody from uh, Russia, where this lady was from Russia, how would you, could you think of a way of working her heritage, her culture into witnessing? And I thought about it and I did. And the reason why is I asked her, um, uh, do you know where the Cyrillic alphabet came from? And she said, I have no idea. And I said it was written by a guy named Kirill and his brother Methodius. And they designed the, we would say the Cyrillic alphabet, but the, the Cyrillic alphabet, they designed it specifically for bringing the good news in the Bible to the Slavic people. They developed that language, or not the language, the alphabet specifically for Slavic languages. And if you can remember things like that, if you t speak to somebody from... So, lots and lots of uh, uh, cultures on earth those alphabets were designed specifically so that the word of God could be translated into their language and this this is what uh, even today uh, Wycliffe Bibles um, translators and several other Bible translator groups go out and they actually invent new alphabets new uh, uh, letters and characters in order to be able to say we don't have the sound in English, and we don't have anything comparable to it, so they'll make a new little uh, uh, character, and they'll insert that into whatever uh, uh, alphabet they're doing. And later, people forget that. They forget where this Cyrillic alphabet came from and what was the history behind it. But it was specifically because they knew Greek, they used the Greek alphabet as a basis for the Cyrillic alphabet, but they developed it into that. So when you talk to somebody about especially like from the Ukraine or Russia or, or any of these Slavic languages, you can use that as a witnessing tool. Because if you're coming at them from the position of this, this person is a little uh, off on what they believe, you know, like most of the people in the world, well, I think this and I think that. And they need to have something to tie them into Christianity <laughs> because they think it's kind of an East versus a West thing or they think that's an old tradition versus a new tradition. And if you can tie it back to something that they are instrumentally aware of, that is a plus. And she was really surprised to hear that. So just having said that, she already understood that there is a creator. And her idea of it was faulty in comparison to the Bible, but she felt satisfied with what she believed. And so what you have to do is you have to not belittle them when you're speaking to them about their beliefs, but you have to show them where they're wrong. And that takes time. It takes effort to be able to think through what is it that is wrong about thinking what she's thinking right now or what a Muslim might be thinking of without, like I say, you don't want to be judgmental or belligerent because the only thing you're going to do is chase them further away from the Lord. But she had that understanding 
And uh, so we'll go on uh, uh, there for since the creation. For, the word uh, in Greek is gar, for, is a connector to the previous verse, which said that um, God's <coughs> wrath comes as a result of our thoughts and actions and in the suppression of the truth about who he is and our accountability to him. In other words, he's tying it back to what he said in verse 18 and 19. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And so that four is an important connector there. Um, he's shown it to us, and yet we ignore him. For since the creation of the world, meaning the moment that all things came into existence, the fact that anything exists at all indicates that there must be what? A creator. And not only a creator, because a lot of people, as I say, have a faulty idea of what a creator is. She asked, well, I was talking to her this morning about reincarnation. Well, immediately that brings in a faulty idea of a creator. If you're reincarnated, then you've got something wrong with your understanding of what he has in store for the people of the world. And I immediately said, no, that's not correct. The Bible says that, and I didn't tell her that it wasn't correct as in a demeaning way. I'm saying that's not what the Bible says, in other words. I said, the Bible says that it is appointed for man to live, die, and then the judgment, and that is it. So um, I misquoted that verse, but anyway. Um, that would be an eternal creator, though. That's right, and he has to be, if he is the creator of all things, he's eternal, and there is a term that we would use to say that he cannot not exist, and that is that he is a necessary being, okay? In other words, if everything exists, everything is here right now, then people would ask naturally, well then, who created God? And that is a category mistake because God is uncreated. As you said, he's eternal. But that takes us to a logical ne next step. If he is uncreated, then that means he must be necessary. He must exist because if we are here, we are contingent beings. That means we were created. We know that we were created. Einstein proved it, the theory of relativity, time, space, and matter all came into existence at one point then that means that we are not necessary. And a lot of people don't want to hear that. They think that they're absolutely necessary and the whole universe revolves around them. But we are not necessary. In other words, God did not have to create us. When he created, he did it in an act of love. That's exactly right. He said, I want to share my goodness and my infinitely glorious being with the creation. Okay, and that doesn't mean the creation here because this is inanimate creation. He had to create this in order to create us. We came from this as far as the material aspect of it, but we transcend it in the fact that God breathed into us the breath of life and he gave us the ability to acknowledge him. Okay, he gave us the ability to know him, to think about him, and to, believe it or not, in an act of love, he gave us the ability to reject him. Because if we can't reject him, then love is not a part of our equation. When we can respond to him, either in rejection or in acceptance, then that is an act of love. Okay? He could create a dog, and a dog can lick our face, and we can, you know, if, if we could create a dog, we would make this thing, and it would lick our face, and we say, isn't that nice? But it doesn't really love us in the sense of understanding what we are. It's just going through the motions based on, you know, it, its makeup. It's like a butterfly. You've heard of the monarch butterflies that fly from Canada. They go down to one valley in Mexico, and they are like a third or fourth generation from the last one that was in that valley. They're, they'll fly down there on the way, they'll die, the next generation gets down there, they go to, down to this one valley to, to uh, uh, propagate, and then they fly all the way back to Canada, and there's like that one or two generations in between them 
And so they have no knowledge of where they're going. Now, what do you call that? Do you call that, um, what, what would we call that? Instinct. Instinct, that's right. We have more than instinct is what I'm trying to say. That butterfly or that dog has instinct. And it's nice when he comes up and he loves us and he remembers us, but it is an instinctual type of thing. It's not a, a, a thing like it is a cognitive, uh, sentient thought like it is in human beings. Everything, there's, a, I think it's the name of a book. It may be the name of a movie, but when I think of it, it, uh, it, it, it it's kind of one of those stunning thoughts is that um, uh, the universe was made with guests expected. In other words, I misquoted that, but in other words, when God created everything, everything that we see and everything that we perceive it was with the purpose of expected guests. He was waiting on us to enter the picture. Because everything else without us doesn't really have any, it's great, but without us in it to enjoy it, it would be just God in a creation that doesn't respond. But here we come, and you think of all of the things on this planet that have to work properly for human life to exist. The temperature, the way that the earth moves, the cycles of everything is geared for us. And so we know that. We can look around at, uh, at the world around us. We can see this marvelous beauty. We can see that it works perfectly so that we don't have to, you know, we don't run out of oxygen when we're breathing. There's the perfect amount of nitrogen. There's the perfect amount of everything. And so we were expected guests in this thing that he has created. And I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I've heard it. And if it's true, it is even more fat, uh, fantastic. But I'm going to say it. Uh, I, I heard it from a creation scientist, and so uh, sometimes they make stuff up that uh, really can't be proven, just like um, evolutionists do. But if it's true, it wouldn't surprise me, is that even the size of the universe itself and all of this, this dark matter that goes out for billions and billions of light years, all of it was necessary in order for the Earth, where it is at on this, you know, you got the, the galaxy right here, and it's like this, and we're on this one little part of this little section of this entire galaxy, this teeny little dot that is insignificant compared to the size of the galaxy, but all of the rest of the galaxies are needed in order for this galaxy to properly operate, in order for this spiral on this galaxy to properly operate, for, so that the, the uh, solar system in this spiral on this galaxy that is properly operating has this one planet that is properly operating. In other words, the entire thing, all of it that we can perceive is geared for planet Earth, okay? And he was very confident that he was correct in his analysis, and it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all. That doesn't mean that we are the center of the universe, because, you know, it used to be we believed that the Earth was the center, on, and uh, then uh, later we found out that the Earth goes around the sun, and then we're just a part of this. But in essence, we would be the center of the universe as far as why the universe was created. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But that's all speculation. Don't make a brain squiggle on that. But... Um, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, he has shown us these things, and like I said, and yet we ignore him. For since the creation of the world, meaning that the moment that all things came into existence, the fact that anything exists at all means that there must be, as I said, a necessary being. And that is a being that cannot not exist. As I said, Burke does not need to exist. God didn't need to create him. He didn't need to put him where he's at. He could have just not created Burke, right? Poor Burke. Right? And that's the same with all of us. We are what we would call contingent beings. We're contingent on something else. And we talked about that a week or two ago. We're contingent in the stream of time, and we're also contingent going up and going in this direction. Right now, God is sustaining us, and he's sustaining all things. The entire universe is a contingent being. 
And as I said, if he did not want to do this anymore, in his infinite wisdom, he said, I just don't want to do this anymore, we would cease to exist. Okay? That won't happen. Why won't that happen? How do we know that God will not do that? Veracity is promised. That's it right there. It, it, is that what you were saying, veracity? Yes. Okay, no, same he thing. Said, he said, even he said with Israel, if the, if the undoing of the planets and etc., and be undone so uh, you know but basically that's right he has made a promise first to israel and he's saying that i i will always have a place for you i will always love you etc etc now because god is god and because we know that everything about him is infinite infinite in nature his love is infinite his truth is infinite there's no change in it there's no backsliding in god there's no change in god at all if there is a change in him if there's a change in his love for example that means there's time associated with it because there's something going from one place to another. He is not associated with time. He created time. Okay, so he is infinite in all of his aspects. So when he says something, then it must be absolute truth. That is, an outside of time, it is something that he has proclaimed and it will never not be. And in the Bible, he has said that we will live in his presence, what? Forever. That's right. Therefore, it must be true because God cannot lie. So not only is he sustaining right now, but we don't need to worry if he is going to unsustain. He will always sustain the creation, and we will always be a part of that creation forever and ever and ever. And that's a hard thing to grasp because i got to tell you what, I wake up, and I'm sure some of you feel the same. You wake up in the morning and you think, I just don't want to be alive today. Anybody had that feeling? Like, I just, no? I, there are days where I just think, I don't want to go on. I just want to go home and be with the Lord. I, I can't believe, you, you? No, I was going to say, oh. Eternity past is harder for me to conceive of than eternity. That's because eternity past doesn't exist. But go ahead. The reason being is because there was no thing that God spoke into being, that he was in perfect fellowship with the Trinity. Right. This seems cold and bleak to us. Okay, well, that that would be... I was saying to us it's it's finite because we have a beginning and an end. But even then, I know in God's estimation of who he is... That he is brilliant in uh, creation of abilities and functions that I don't even. That's true. But, he says, but when you when you me. think of that though, you're thinking of creation past as time. Yeah. And there is no time because you got to remember this. Now this is one thing that's very hard to get your mind around. You actually have to lay in bed and just think. I can't believe that I'm the only one that thinks I don't want to go on today. I just I, I man, there are days where I just want to be home with the Lord. But having said that. Um, before he created time, space, and matter, okay, there was no time, space, or matter. That means that you can't go back from before that moment and say God existed eternally in the sense of time. He just existed. There was no time associated with it. So his perfect fellowship with the Holy Spirit and with the Son was one thing, and then he created. And there was no time associated with it. So you can't go back and say, here's the moment of creation right here, and this is time going this way. And before that, there was this infinite amount of time. There wasn't. There was just God. That was it. There was just God. There was no time associated with it. There was no... And that's why you could say, why didn't he create the universe five minutes before he created it? Or why didn't he create it a thousand years before he created it? Why didn't he create it 17 billion years ago? Why now? Because right now is exactly when we are in the stream of time from the moment he created it. And before then, it wouldn't make any difference. 
because we would still be in the same stream of time that he created from a moment of uh, from one moment and before that there was no time you can't go back and you say anything about God other than God in the beginning God oh no in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has set eternity in the heart of man that's right so that's that he will not find out what he's done from the beginning to the end even in uh, Isaiah when he wrote that uh, he leads forth the host the stars right and not one of them is missing. Right. That even as man explores further, 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 further out, he will never get to the point, at least till God folds this thing up, to know that at the very end, this is the galaxies, and all of a sudden there's nothingness out here. So I understand it, because he knows the greatness of what he's created. But he's made it so great and vast. Just so we'll we never be able to plumb the depths yeah, of it. Absolutely. But as far as time goes, whatever time he started it at, that's when the, the clock started. And th there was nothing before that except God. And so you can't think, well, eternity passed as, boy, he must have been bored back there. Because it's not on the same level that okay, we're on right now. Yeah, okay. there, there, there's, not struggling, but just hard to conceive. It's very hard to conceive. Like I say, you have to just lay in bed and you have to think about it. Because it's something we can't get our mind around. That there wasn't a time and then a time and then a time and then a time. It was just God. Okay, yes? The finite cannot explain The, the infinite. infinite. That's exactly right. We cannot grasp what is yeah, infinite. To smoke. <laughs> yeah, th th that's exactly right. Smoke starts coming out of the ears, and that is that's all that we have. So Amen. it's one of those things that we have to just trust that he did it at the right time, and that no matter when he did it, the cycle is perfect in what he has done. It is it, it is just perfect, and so that's why it's kind of a category mistake to say, well, why didn't he do it this time or this time? Because when he started, it was the only time that he did start it. And there could have been no other time because there was nothing before he started it. Only God. Okay? I know that's hard to understand, but just lie in bed and think about it. God without time, space, or matter. Just God. So it doesn't matter when we think of the infinite. It doesn't equate to what we understand as now. Now, having said that, God is, he is perfect, perfectly actual in his being. There's nothing about him that's going to change. Okay? And so we talked about that a while ago. He is act. Pure actuality. And then man, I, I explained this before, is progressively actuating potential. Okay, potential. All right, that means that everything about us has the potential to become something else. Everything about us. Well, where does that leave angels? What would an angel be? What type of an angel would be this? And this is just speculation. It's not in Romans, but I just wanted to, to a throw... A fallen angel. It's a spirit. A what? Well, angels are servant, but I'm thinking about what their character is. If, if this is actuality, God is pure act, and we are progressively actuating potential, there must be something that angels are. Angels are what? The Bible calls them... Well, no, no, no. Spirits. They're spirits. Okay? So, they don't have parts the way we do. Now, if they take on parts, that's something that God would have ordained from eternity past. I don't want to get into that right now. But an a, a angel is what we would call an ev eternal E-T-E-R-N-A-L Ev eternal being That means he has a beginning But he has no end Okay And so he is what we would call Fully actuated potential He has all of the potential He will ever have At the moment he's created And then it is actuated It's fully actuated potential Because it's a spirit being It's living in the <laughs> infinite realm But it can no longer change And that's why when an angel is fallen It can't be redeemed yes is because it's fully actuated potential. 
That's just a philosophical argument, but it's correct. Believe me, I, 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 I can assure you that there's no other way to describe an angel other than that. Whereas we are progressively actuating potential, and we are going to have a body forever. We're not going to be spirit beings. We will be spiritual beings, but not spirit beings. And therefore, we will always have potential. We will have the potential to learn more about God forever. It will be wonderful. So I, I, when I say that I, I have no desire for this life to continue on, I'm talking about this life. I'm not talking about my eternal existence. I'm talking about this life. I, there are just days where I just I don't want to go on. Bro. Oh, okay. All right. Because nope, everybody seems to think, <laughs> I want to go on forever. I just don't want to do it in this body. I just don't want to do it. And there, there are days where I just think, I just don't want this to go on. I, you know, bending over to pick up trash, like I said before the class. I bend over on, I don't remember what day it was. Was I in pain on Sunday? No. That must have been Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember. Anyway, I bent over just to pick something up, and I didn't pick it up. I just bent over. Hi, Sandy. How are you? Come on over here for a minute. I'm going to interrupt the class for you, just, just because I've had you on my heart all week long. And so come on over here. Really quickly, let's say, let's say a prayer with Sandy. Here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Sandy. And it's so good to see her getting better from her cancer every day. And uh, her hair is coming back. And I, I can see the cheer in her face. And you're not hurting anymore, are you? No. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for Sandy and how she is just holding together so well. What a precious gift she is. And uh, we just ask that you continue to sustain her always. And uh, Lord, we'll be sure to praise you all the way through this journey. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All Thank right. you. You betcha. It's so good. You know, I just, I was just sitting there thinking about you a couple days ago, and I thought, I'm just so grateful to the Lord that he, he let us live in the age we live where we can find treatment for the things. And so we can rely on the Lord to heal us if he wishes, but he also gives us the sense to go to the doctor if we need healing or to take an aspirin if our head hurts. And uh, we live in a time where these things are possible, and it, it, it's, it, you know, you need a new hip, now you can get one. I don't know how long ago it was, but it couldn't have been too long ago where you couldn't get one. So thank the Lord for that. Um, anyway, we'll go on. Um, uh, let's see here. It, God cannot not exist. We know this because the universe simply could not exist. And I kind of addressed that. The universe itself could not exist. It's a contingent being. And we know that because of Einstein. We knew it all along. We knew this all along, and philosophers have known how to defend this all along. But science had to catch up with theologians. And then what do they do? As soon as they catch up with theologians, they try to find a reason why the science that they have come up with is wrong. Okay, it, that's, that's, it, Because it's a scary thing. When you look at something like the theory of relativity and you say, oh my goodness, we did have a beginning, which they've been de denying all along, the universe is eternal, whereas uh, philosophers and uh, theologians have always said that it can't be. And here's why. We have all these reasons. Einstein proves it. And then we have the, the uh, second theory of, rel I'm sorry, the uh, second. Uh, Matter is neither created nor destroyed. That's right. I'm thinking thermodynamics. The, uh, that's right. Uh, the second, uh, not theory, the second principle of thermodynamics. And I'm not thinking of the term right now. But matter in a closed system, I'm sorry, energy in a closed system is breaking down. In other words, if the universe was eternal, if the universe was eternal, then we would have no energy at all in the universe right now. It would be cold, it would be dead, it would be completely non-existent. And the reason why is because if it's eternal, then the energy would have started an, etern etern an eternal amount of time ago, and it would have run down. Because in thermo 
thermodynamics proves this. Energy in a closed system is wearing down. So if you have a closed system and we know that the universe is a closed system, then there would be an infinite amount of time for that energy to have run down and therefore it would have run down. Therefore there must have been a beginning. Each time we come up with one of these things, these principles, we understand more that there is a God. And like I say, most people don't think about these things, but just the little that they do think about God condemns them. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us. I, I shouldn't be getting off on all these side tangents, but it's interesting stuff because people have thought these things through, and as I said, science catches up with them, and then it scares them. And so they suppress the knowledge of God, and they make something up like, uh, what's the guy, Stephen Hawking's, the universe created itself. Okay, it can't create itself because if it created itself, then what? Would still be doing it. If well, it no, still, he would have. It, the universe would have existed before it existed. Yeah. It wouldn't still be doing it. But if it created itself, if it popped into existence by itself, by its own effort, then it would have had to have existed before it existed. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but you're right. It would. It, it seems like it would continue. To, I mean, if it. Well, it could. It could. You know, that goes on to with the theory of the Big Bang. What you're thinking of is that if the universe created itself, and if it was off by even the smallest little part, and we're talking about like one with a billion zeros behind it, it would collapse in on itself, and then it would have to come out again, or it would just keep expanding out and out and out forever, and it would never be cohesive. And they know this. They've proved this scientifically. So what do they do? They come up with these theories that say this and this and this and this. And uh, Stephen Hawking, like I said, before he said that the universe created itself, he had to come to the idea of a singularity. Everybody here heard of a singularity? Singularity is the universe being infinitely small. Everything that we see smaller than the head of a pin. Everything in the whole universe. And infinitely dense and infinitely time compressed. That means that this is what he's theorized. It's so small and it's so compressed that there was no time associated with it. But there's a problem with that because if it is matter, then there is time associated with it. And that means that it's eternal. And once he thought that through, then he said, oh, well, then it, it had to create itself because he's got to get away from what is obvious. And so they keep coming up with these things instead of just looking at the Bible and saying that there must be a God that did this and this God cannot not exist. Okay. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, uh, and not only is it, uh oh, let me go back here. This is spoken of by Paul in Colossians 1, 17. Let me go back and tell you what, it, it is contingent. We know that uh, the universe could not, not exist. It is a contingent being on something else to be contingent on being. Okay, so the universe is contingent. We know this. And then that is what Paul speaks of in Colossians 1, 17. I read this, I think, last week. It'll go really quickly, just so you remember that. That's right. By him all things exist, or subsist, um, or are held together. And him, uh, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And like I say, I don't like that word consist because it, it, it kind of gives the idea of something having matter and just consisting, like pudding. And that's not what it's talking about. It's the, Yeah, it's being held together. The NIV doesn't really translate it directly. It paraphrases it to give us all things are held together. But John Darby's translation, when it says, by him all things subsist, that means that there's something under it which is holding it together at all times. And so, very good translation using a single word. But um, uh, he mentions it again in Hebrews 1.3. I read that last week as well, so I won't again. But um, as noted in the previous verse, 
even if the Bible weren't the Word of God, and this is what's important to understand, it still proclaims these self-evident truths, and thus it validates what Paul is saying about our relationship to God. Okay. In other words, I take the Bible and I, I, I teach it because I believe that it is the Word of God. Right? And I think that most people here, or everybody, believes that it is the Word of God. But it doesn't mean it is. Okay, because Muslims have the Quran and they believe that that is the word of God, right? So, just because I believe something is true does not mean that it is true, okay? It has to validate itself. Even if the Bible wasn't the word of God, which it is, but even if it wasn't, what Paul is writing about is still a self-evident truth. It's something that we can't deny, okay? And that's what's important about the Bible is because if you have a multitude of self-evident truths and nothing which is incorrect in this book, then you are pretty sure that it's the word of God, okay? And then what do you do? You exercise faith in that it is the word of God, okay? Now, if I go to the Quran and I read it, which I did, you know, back in 1993 when I moved, 1990 when I moved to Malaysia, there are things in the Quran that just are not correct. And you know they're not correct about the nature of God. And if you read it, you say there's something wrong with that, okay? And then you can prove it logically then it's not the word of God. You've taken care of that. But with the Bible, you keep coming up with these, these evidences. You come up with more evidences. And as you cited, Isaiah in the Psalms and these, these passages, which are irrefutable with today's science, and you have to say, this must be the word of God. I'm going to exercise faith in what it says. And what does it say? It says that God <laughs> loves us enough to come out of the infinite realm and to unite with human flesh in the person of Jesus. I'm going to put my trust in Jesus. And so when you're witnessing to somebody, you don't want to get into all of this theological stuff because you'll just burden them. But you have a basis, if you know all of this stuff, to talk simply to them. And like I say, if you try to give them, oh, the universe could not not exist and all this, that's too much for them. What they need to know is you have the grounding in those truths and you can take them and simplify them when you're talking to them. And if they ask something that's really profound, then you can say, aha, I can answer that for you and then get into this, okay? But it's always better to go from a position of knowledge than of lack of knowledge. And a perfect evidence of that is, anybody, somebody knocking on your door? Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Those guys are really, really well trained in the verses that they know, okay? They've mishandled the Bible. They are there to set an agenda and to deny that Jesus is the word of God. But they know the verses that they are going to use against what you don't know. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? If you are not well trained in the Bible, you are going to be standing there looking stupid when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness. That's all there is to it because they know the verses that you say, well, I never thought about it that way. Then that's why you should have a, either a very good knowledge of what they are going to present to you first so that you can refute it or just don't talk to them at all because you're only going to bolster their thoughts about what they believe. Isn't that right? We see them in the projects every Saturday. They're down there, not every Saturday, but they're there a lot, and it's either us or them. And so when somebody comes and they say, well, the JWs were here and they said this, you've got to have an answer for them. Okay, that's why we have Bible studies is to know these things because they are really well-trained people, and they take the few verses that they cling to and they twist them, and they say, see, Jesus isn't God. Right? My father is greater than I. How do you defend that? Because they're going to say that one to you right away. My father is greater than I. 
says, He does, but how do you defend that one? Yeah, because you say you believe in You've given him a verse, now you're playing, playing scripture tennis. Mm-hmm. He says this and you say this. How do you defend it? I use uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 because they don't believe in the Trinity. At That's all, right. Like God, three in one. But where it says, go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those are instructions from God. That's correct. Why would, they, why would he do that? Okay. Well, how is that going to refute my Father is greater than I? That's what I'm asking right now. Well, okay, because Matthew 28 is a perfect verse, but how is it going to do it? Well, Jesus said, if, if, you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what I said. You're using scripture tennis. He's right. playing one, you're playing one, and they're saying, well, right. right? How do you refute that? Now, if you know that the Greek in Matthew 28 says onoma in the singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's singular. Well, we go back then to the, Genesis, let us create man in our That verse. You, you, don't, don't get off on tangents right now. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> you have given a verse to substantiate your view. Unless your view refutes them, then the verse you've used is pointless. You're playing what I call scripture tennis. You just lop it back and forth, and people are just just making time. That's all you're doing. You've given a verse, but that verse doesn't refute them until you know that the Greek uses the word name in the singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three are one. Does everybody understand that? In the Greek, the three are one being. It would be like us saying um, uh, in the name of, well, anyway, I, I don't think we can Charlie, do it. Charlie, our pastor. Yeah, Charlie, our pastor. There's two things that are one. Okay, that's a good example. The name in Greek is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one name. Therefore, they are one in essence. Okay, now, so you've said that. Now you can go to Genesis next. But what I'm saying is you have to logically take your time and you have to go through without pulling out a lot of stuff because they're going to pull out a lot of stuff too. Okay, now. They're going to say, my father is greater than I. But you've just established that they are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does that tell you about the greaterness of the Father than the Son? What does that tell you about it? It doesn't mean that he's greater in being. It means that he's greater in position. The Father logically comes first positionally. doesn't mean that he came first before the Son in the sense of the divine nature. You have a lot. Oh, here, here's. I've, I've given you this example, but uh, this is important. I didn't mean to cut you off on that, but I don't want you to well, get into Genesis. I have used that because I don't know. Right. The language. But did it change their mind? Yeah, I, th- I think they didn't, hadn't thought about that before. Okay. Did they come back and say that they had received no, Jesus? They okay. Their there you go. <laughs> that's what they always do. They always defer if they don't know the answer to your question. They say, I'm going to go ask the elders. Yeah. And usually they bring the elder with you. Now all you've done, and you know what it says in the book of, uh, before I go on, here's what it says. I want, and I want you to know this because this is important. Because what you will do if that elder comes into the house and he leaves and he says, see, she couldn't answer your question, what have you done? They what? Yeah, you've made them think that they're right. And further, you violated scripture because it says in... Um, yeah, it says, do not... Oh, okay, good, good. That's what it says. Do not... But it says, don't even greet them, lest you share in their wicked work. I just don't okay. my own faith usually. Yeah. It, so you want to make sure that when you talk to somebody on the... the uh, from the aspect of a Christian, that you let them know in advance that you are not greeting them as a Christian. Okay, that's what's important because if you start just getting into like a, well, I'm a Methodist, then I'm a Presbyterian, and here's our differences, you're solidifying their belief that they are 
sound in the Bible. And that's why it says, do not even greet them lest you share in their wicked work. And when we're walking down, Tom knows this, I won't even say hello to him. When we pass him in the projects, I won't say hello to him. I won't wave at him. I won't say anything to him. And the reason why is because if somebody in the project sees me do that, I have now validated them in their eyes. Do you know what, though? I had one time a girl that I worked with in the bank where I worked in one of the departments was one of the ones that showed up there. And I was making cookies for the youth group for that night, and uh, I, you know, didn't know what to do, but actually I did spend some time talking to him, and the friend that was with her really got more convinced than she did, because she's probably been with them longer. Right, that's why you got to be careful with those things. You you, you have to, because the Bible says that for a reason. I'm afraid to even say anything, because I'm afraid I'll do something I shouldn't do. And that's why I say, if you're going to speak to him, you have to be well-trained. Okay, but I, I, we've got to get back to that one first before I get back into Romans is the, uh, the Father is greater than I. Okay, and I said, you've already established that they're one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the word in Greek is singular, and therefore they're one essence. And I'm just going to give you this example. You've got time, and I've showed you this before. You've got the future, you've got the present, and you've got the past. They're all one thing, but the future logically comes before the present. It doesn't mean that there wasn't always a present, and it doesn't mean that there wasn't always a past, but this is logically coming first. It has the preeminent position in how it is presented. So the Father is logically presented first in the Bible. And then what comes after the Father? The Son. That's right. And then who issues from the Son? The Holy Spirit. They're all one thing, but when you are talking to somebody, you can say... This is speaking positionally. It's not speaking in an authoritative manner like that he is greater than me in being. They're one being because Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 has established that. Okay, That's why it's important to understand these things. And it's important not to, don't do what you did and go one, and I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying that if you say, well, what about this and then this and then you, you need to very carefully and methodically go through each verse. And that's why we do this with Romans. We're going through one verse, and we'll talk about it, and we'll come up with all these other things. But ultimately, it's coming back to one single point. But do you think they're smart enough to be that logical? About Everybody is smart way? enough. I you mean, know. You know. I mean, I think they've accepted it without really reasoning well, that's right. any but, of it. But, but everybody does that. That's what we call a presupposition. Mm-hmm. Everybody has presuppositions. What you need to do is you need to very meticulously and carefully work those out of them. And some people are willing to. They're actually worried about where they are going. Some people have set their mind that this is the way, I'm not going to change my mind, and nothing you say will ever change their mind. If they have a presupposition and it is inside of them, they will never, never change their mind. But some people are actually worried enough about their doctrine that they will say, I could be wrong. And when you come to the Bible, you need to say, I could be wrong on this issue. And I'm careful when I'm not sure of something. I always say that. I mean, I say it in sermons. I say it in Bible studies. I'm not sure about this. Okay, it's a, a wise way to be because you don't want to say I know everything. You know, prophecy people—they know everything about the Bible, and yet they know about this much of the Bible. They're myopic in what they focus on, and so they—they they will take verses out of context from the Old Testament to apply them to you know America of today, and they do this continuously because they are, have a presupposition about Bible prophecy. It's better not to do that. Um, it's not better. It's don't do that. Anyway, let's uh, go back to that. Um, uh, Not only is it simply being here, proof of existence of God, but what is here shows us who he is. Okay, and this is what he writes here. He says um, in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that means 
the nature of God, his being, his love, his truthfulness, his righteousness, his uh, grace, his mercy, those attributes of God are evident. They're, they are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Okay, this is one thing that I brought up in a very simple fashion to the girl today, is do you love your children? She has two children, right? Well, yes, I do. I said, now, if one of them is a rebel and the other one is really good, which one are you going to give the attention to in order to bring them around to being good? And she says, well, the one that's a rebel. Well, she understands that, right? Okay, so if this child continues to do wrong, you are eventually going to do something. We don't want to talk about it in the world today, but you're going to punish your child. You're going to take away their cell phone. You're going to put them in their room for the night, right? You're going to do whatever you do as a parent to say, you are not responding properly and I'm going to punish them. Where does that come from? Moral guide. A moral guide. That's right. And it's pretty much universal. If I go outside and I get into my truck and I ram it into the side of your car because I'm angry at you, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to be angry. If you didn't have something moral inside of you, you wouldn't care. You'd be like, it doesn't matter. Now, if the car was a piece of junk to start with, you wouldn't care. But I'm talking about this is your transportation and this is, right? You have something inside of you. Where does that come from? Because this cannot exist apart from God. That's it can't. We can't have... Professors tell, tell young folks in school that uh, judgment and those kind of things are making uh, a judgment call has no bearing upon society. Then that's, that's right. That's what they are trying to work out of us. He the professor's car and see what he says. That's right. That's exactly right. They are trying to work out of us that there is a moral standard. But what you just said is correct. If Okay, well, I'm going to go out and key my professor's car. And if he gets angry, then it shows that he's wrong, that he has something inside of him, and it had to come from somewhere. If I love my wife, that had to come from somewhere because I can't do something that didn't come from my creator. Okay? I may do it wrong. I may have a type of love that is not perfect, like God's love is, but it had to come from somewhere. We can't possess an attribute that God does not possess. And so when we see the workings of the universe and we say, that didn't just happen all by itself. This is what Paul is writing about right here. He's saying that everything is understood about God, not everything about God, but I'm saying everything that we perceive is understood because of God. It has to be that way. It had to have come. These attributes had to have come from somewhere. Okay? The perfect question to ask a mother, if you're witnessing to her or a father, have you taught your children to do wrong? No. They knew how to do wrong. They knew how to lie immediately. Right? Well, where did that come from? It came from subverting the good that is in God. God didn't make them lie. They chose to lie, and they know that it's morally wrong because when you catch them at it, what do they do? They hide it. They, they'll deny it again, and then eventually they'll be ashamed that they got caught, okay, but they know that they've done wrong, and they'll sit in their room, and then they'll come back, and they'll say, I'm sorry, Mommy, right? Because that's what we do. We are using the moral attributes of God in us imperfectly, and but we can perceive that there is something that they came from because, as you said, if you go out and you key that professor's car, he's going to be upset, and you've just blown his entire argument out of the water. Our attributes in us, in all of the world, had to have come from somewhere, and that is what God has done. He has shown us himself. about the, the Muslim, with his view, he holds that his scripture is correct. That's right. And we as, as believers, as Christians, we hold this is true, but we have external proofs through, like you say, nature, creation, 
that give validation because if you weigh this against things, I'm not saying, I can't go from an academic standing of high, uh, high critical things like you can, but even a person with common sense who sees the thing around them, the design of creation, how things work, progression, the weather, the, the elements, the, you know, the sun and the stars, how you can But the Muslims are going to have that as well. Yeah. That, that's not something that, what's that? They don't have fulfilled prophecy. That's right. That's another thing. Fulfilled prophecy is something that the Bible does have. Okay? So what we're talking about is things that will disprove the Quran or that will disprove Buddhism or that will disprove, okay? To say that, you know, it, they have all of the attributes around them, they may be misunderstanding them. Okay? And they do misunderstand because they go put on bomb vests and they blow themselves up. Okay? But what you need to do is go to the source. What is wrong in the source? And the source in the uh, Quran, one of the things is that God changes. He's vindictive. God in the Bible doesn't change. And I'm going to talk about that this Sunday with Moses because it appears that he relents and doesn't do something that he said he was going to do. Why would he do that? Why would the Bible say that he was going to do one thing and then he turned around and changed his mind? He didn't really change his mind because he's molding Moses. In the end, the lesson is for Moses. It's not for God. Right? So the Bible has substantiated that God didn't change after all. That the man Moses is being tested. Whereas the Quran doesn't do that. God actually changes in the Bible. Can't be the God of the universe. Okay? And That's the kind of thing that you need to discern. What was that? God changes in the... In the Quran. That's correct. Did I say that or did I... You said Bible. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible... Sorry, if I said Bible... And I do that all the time. I got the Bible on my head. So, yeah, God in the Bible does not change. In the Quran, God does change. There is actual change. He's vindictive in his nature, and it can't be the God of, can't be the God of creation. I was about to do it again. Anyway, okay, um, let's see here. Uh, where was I? Um, the universe displays God's infinite, immense wisdom in its timed perfection. Therefore, whatever created this time for perfection must be greater than the time perfection of the universe. If you understand that, he has created all this. He set all of this in order, and everything works so perfectly. We, back in the uh, 60s, with slide rules, were, were able to develop rockets to send to the moon using slide rules. Nowadays, a PlayStation computer, and actually this is 10 or 15 years ago, had more computing power than all of NASA's computers combined. Okay, These people used their minds, and they used slide rules, and they figured things out to get a rocket from the Earth all the way up to the moon because they knew that it was timed perfectly. They knew that the atmosphere was this dense at this point. It would be this, you know, they'd need this much fuel to get out of the, the surface of the Earth. All of these things we can deduce. And that means that God has put all of this into motion in a way that we can use and we can understand. If that's the case, then he must be greater than what he has created. And I would suggest that he is infinitely greater. And the reason why is because if we're going to be infinitely living in his presence from this point when we were created and on, that's a lot of time for us to find out the wonder of God. He is infinitely greater than the things that we perceive even right now. He so, did, didn't he, when he confused the language, God said that man will be like, uh, when he went down and confused the languages, he did that and he made, a, he made quite a contribution in sense about man, about figuring out... Oh yeah, Thanks. if we don't do this, let me read that to you because that's you're, you're absolutely right. I'm not saying I'm giving man a high threshold. That's right. If we don't do this, then not, yeah, nothing. He will stop at nothing. Um, I, I misquoted that, but it's Genesis 11, and he says, um, 
Um, come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 6. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they, have, uh, they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do? Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Very high threshold. And what do you think is going on in the world right now? We are redoing what he undid. Google, what does he call it? Babel, right? All of the languages are being combined into one. They've just, in the past week, I read an article that they have now perfected speech to a, a, a great, great level. You know, when we call up and we get a, a automated voice, we know it's a computer voice. They have now got something that is way beyond that, where when you call, it's going to be just... And now imagine this. We can real-time on Skype now with several languages. I can talk to you in English, and then you're speaking German, and they match, right? Because they can real-time translate those two. So when I speak, immediately it translates to English, or German for him, and when he speaks German, it translates it back to English for me. Now imagine doing that with a voice that is just perfect, right? Okay? In that passage of Genesis, it speaks of the speech and the lip. And they're two different parts of the language. Those are both being united now into one by people like Google. And so we're going to have the opposite of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It's like the chiasm of the Bible. This happened, this happened, this happened. And then you get to the cross and everything starts going in the opposite direction. And all of the things that were are becoming again. We are undoing what God has done because we think we're better than God. Okay, That's why he ordained nations to be nations. There's no problem with me marrying my wife who's from another lang uh, country, but when I did, she became a part of this country. She assimilated, right? When you start having open borders the way that George Soros and the, the, the globalists want, we are undoing what God has established. And that is usurping what God intends for man. Nations are a good thing. They keep the world in check. Without nations, what do you have? You've got chaos. You've got one world government and you've got absolute control over all people exactly what was going back to Genesis 11. So you're right about that. You're absolutely right about that. God, everything that he has done has been established in order to show us his attributes, including the, the establishment of nations and the creating of all of these languages. We're trying to usurp that right now. Okay, um, let's see here. The uh, uh, harmony of nature shows us wisdom in every turn. The structure of DNA is more intricate than we can possibly imagine. A spider's web is geometrically woven. Think of that now. Think of a spider. You know, it's this big and it's got, I don't care how long the legs are, I'm talking the body is about this big, right? And in that is a little head, which is like that big, and inside of that head is this little brain, this teeny little thing, this, how small is it? And yet it can weave something that we can't do, right? A brilliant geometric figure. And we think, how did it do that? And we study it, and we still can't figure out all the details of what that little spider... Do you know that there are spiders? I think it's the uh, Snake River Canyon, might be the Grand Canyon, that will be able to send out a thread from one side of the canyon and go all the way across to get to the other side of the canyon. Now imagine that. Imagine that they even know to do that, right? Now imagine the size of our brains, what we can do and what we can think. Just think of that, right? So... Having said that, uh, the structure of DNA is more intricate than we can possibly imagine. What did uh, Bill Gates say about DNA? He said, if I could write a computer that was coded as DNA was, there's nothing I couldn't do. Imagine that. 
right? We, right now, every single thing that we have on our computers, everything is brought down to what? How many digits? I'll give you a hint, that's right, two. One and zero. Every picture that we have, every doctoral dissertation that's been submitted on, that you can read on the internet, all that comes down to a zero or a one. And right now we are developing quantum computers, which are gonna be an infinite magnitude more intelligent. They've already sent a, a quantum uh, computer uh, uh, spy thing up, the Chinese did about a, a couple weeks ago. And uh, one of the prophecy updates. Anyway, so we're starting to get into quantum computers where you have now four codes and they're moving around like this. Well, that's what DNA is. DNA is only four codes, A, G, C, and T, right? And yet every single living thing on this planet, everything is based on those four letter codes. Imagine that, the, the infinite amount of, of variety in human beings alone. And then you've got monkeys, you've got dogs, and you've got all of these wonderful things based on four letter codes. Now I'll tell you something, and this is gonna sound outlandish, but the Bible is based on how many letter codes? Well, for English, it's 27, isn't it? But I don't know. No, the original Bible is based on 22 letter codes, okay? The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and that pattern runs all the way through the Bible. I can show you the patterns, okay? If we and everything that we are and all animals on this planet are based on four letter codes, imagine what God has tucked away in here if it's based on 22 letter codes, okay? As I said, if you go through, the Bible has how many books in it? 66. They're broken down into sets of three 22-letter codes. And all the way through, you will find patterns all the way through the Bible that are based on these 22-letter codes. There are 21 chapters in the book of John. There are 22 in Revelation. They overlap, and they have patterns that you wouldn't believe. If you sit down and you study them, you won't believe it. I did um, uh, my uh, paper, uh, can't remember which one in college, based on the book of John and the book of Revelation with those 22-letter codes. Okay, based on the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, I'll give you one that just comes to mind every time because it's very simple to remember. Is the Hebrew letter, the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet is pet. That's the letter, okay? It means mud, right? Just what it means. What did John do, or Jesus do in John chapter nine? That's right, he made eyeballs out of mud. Okay, it was an example. And that's just one of billions of these that run through the Bible. All the way through the Bible, there are things based on the 22 letter codes. I wouldn't dismiss this book I, I tell you what, now, you, you couldn't put a gun to my head and said, you know what, repent of believing in the Bible or I'm going to pull the trigger. I'm going to say, pull now, buddy. I don't care because this thing is a marvel. And what is in here, we will be studying and we will be having things revealed to us forever. I assure you of that. It, it is a marvel of wisdom. Anyway, a little diversion there, but DNA, more intricate than we can imagine. A spider's web, immensely strong, highly flexible, marvelous in its design. The galaxies stretch off beyond our range of sight, each immense and stupendous in its complexity. And now we find, week after week, they go a little further with the Hubble telescope, and they find out another batch of galaxies that they didn't know existed. And every one of those galaxies has got thousands and millions and billions of stars in them. And we keep saying, well, this has got to be the end, and there's more out there that we find. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 what is it called, the deep field photo that was taken by Hubble some years ago? And it, it, just a little little piece of the, you know, it, the Hubble can only focus in one direction of all of the, the sky around us. There's one little thing, and it goes out, and there are galaxies as far as you can see. Galaxies. And we used to think that it was just like a tapestry up there with pin cushions in it, and, you know, that's the stars. And now we find out that, imagine Hubble's 
heart rate when he realized those weren't stars but galaxies out there. All that time in human history we'd been wrong thinking that this is just a bunch of stars and we find out that they are galaxies of more stars. That must have been an immense thing to, uh, to uh, imagine. But anyway, galaxies, each immense and stupendous in complexity, and yet all of the created order must be less glorious than the creator who made it. That's something to, to think about there. Despite this, man in his desire to pursue unrighteousness ascribes all of it to design of random chance. Okay? Random chance just popped all of this into existence. Random chance spun these galaxies off so that they're perfectly working. And, you know, you look at one galaxy taking over another galaxy, and they say, well, see, this is how these things form, and this one is eating it, and it's a problem with the universe, and there's no problem there. This is what God has designed in order to continue the universe as it's going. All right? But they, they find reasons to blame God at every single point along the way, Not no matter how nature. much. What's that? Not Mother Nature. Uh, Mother Nature, too, yeah. She's there somewhere. She's got her finger in the pie, too. But, yeah, we, we will do anything. We will do anything except acknowledge that God has got his hand in it. Oh, Anyway, despite our denials, though, the truth is understood, as Paul says right here, is understood by the things that are made. The second psalm shows us the wickedness of humanity and our desire to cast off the rule of God and the authority of God. It says in verses 1 through 3, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now that's speaking specifically about Christ and the authority of Christ ruling over us, but it can be applied to Romans as well because that's what that guy you were talking about, the, the professor that teaches the children that it's all random and that our morals are not absolute, okay? They're trying to cast all of this off in our schools today. They're trying to cast off any hint of where we came from as a people and to just say that everything is random and everything is chaotic, and it is not. Everything has purpose and everything was designed by God for a reason. Even the people that deny him, even the people that deny him were created for a reason. You can tell a person the word of the Lord and you know people will take the, 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 this verse and they'll apply it saying that my word will not return to me void. And that's always going to convert people and that's not what that's speaking about. My word will not return to me void means some people will be converted and some people will be condemned. But his word has served its purpose. Some people will see that word and they'll say, I don't believe that and that's fine. You've heard the word and now you've got a choice to make. And God's purpose, did, his word did not return to him void. He will be glorified either through us bowing our knee to him voluntarily or he will be glorified through their destruction, their condemnation. Either way, God gets the glory. He did it. Um, let's see here. Man takes his stand. He writes books about the cosmos and which theorize a universe without God in control and where man is the supreme authority over his destiny. The governments of the world attempt to show that there is no God by inventing what? What's the global... Well, they started with something else, didn't they? Global cooling. That's right. Remember that in the 70s? Ice Age? Matter of fact, Jethro Tull sang a song about it. They were on the global cooling bandwagon. So they can't say that they didn't have it because Jethro Tull was supporting them, right? And then after that, they came up with the next one right after global cooling died out. What did they say? Acid. Oh, right. Acid rain, right? We got to save the world. That didn't work out. All right. So what did they do next? couple years later they came up with global warming right now that didn't work out that's right now it's climate change because none of it has worked out 
And climate change covers everything. Covers everything. So it means nothing at all. It means absolutely nothing because you go outside, oh, you know, we're going to go outside in 20 minutes and it's going to be cooler than it was when we got here, right? Oh, climate's changing. Got somebody coming in right now, so come on in here. How you doing there? Come on up here real quickly. Yeah, come here. Come here. This guy came all the way from Germany to attend the Superior Word. Good to meet you, Lothar. Wow, wow, wow. How are you? A little tired. I bet you are. Wow, wow, wow. Well, that's good because you can go to bed early tonight. I go to bed. I don't know if you know it. I go to bed at 8 o'clock. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Absolutely. I saw him there. Will you come on in, sit down, relax, and we'll be done in a while. Oh, boy. Okay, let's see here. What? Yes? Abraham Lincoln said, I can see how it might be possible for man to look down upon earth and be an atheist. But I can't conceive how he can look up to heaven and say there is no God. Can you imagine? Absolutely. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. That's right. You know, it, it's a sad thing that he can say things like that. Nowadays, you can't even say the name of Jesus at all without somebody suing you, saying you can't say that. And in, in, They have no idea what they do, but they, they tell the world that they don't, how this nation was established on Christian principles. 100% absolutely definitive proof of it. And yet, nowadays, you can't even say that because it's so obvious. Our leaders, if Abraham Lincoln, and he, he was wrong, we can't even look, like I said, at a spider web and say there's no God. We can't do it. We have to know. But it, it's a good quote. I like it. But it's it, 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 talking it, about people. Oh, well, that's true. You can look at people. Society. If he was talking about people, I would agree with that. Society. You could say, man, uh, I don't know if God is in this mix or not. And that, that is a real excuse. That is a real excuse that people use, isn't it? And that's another one you have to be ready for. What do people say to deny when you're trying to tell them about Jesus? What did they say? So why, is, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? How do you answer that? Well, there's a couple things. He says, if, if God is perfectly good, then evil wouldn't exist, right? You hear that? You hear it all the time. Well, no, maybe evil has a part in that, okay? And if God is perfectly good, why doesn't he destroy evil? Well, yeah, that's right. That's the answer. He just hasn't done it yet. That's right. But it's coming. And that's what the Bible is showing us. And you need to be able to... Thank you. That was perfect. It, you need to be able to say beyond what they're thinking right now. Is that God has this plan and he's revealed it right here. Take them to the last page of the Bible and say, what does this say? He has promised that evil will be done away with. He just hasn't done it yet. And why? Well, then you go to another verse. The, God wants, yeah, he's patient. He's long-suffering. He wants none to perish, but all to come to a, um, I'm going to misquote it, so I won't, but anyway, to a saving knowledge of Jesus, right? He, so He didn't want to make a bunch of robots. He, he didn't want to make robots, and he wanted his plan to be perfectly executed in the stream of time. That's right. So what is, because you brought up evil, what is evil? Just very quickly, what is evil? Anything that harms yourself or others. Well, some people are masochists or sadists, aren't they? So that's not evil then. Well, if you're harming yourself. Okay, well, you could argue that, but a sadist wouldn't. Or others. Or others. They, they're masochists, so they would say that's not true. Who said Well, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If somebody says that, then they're going to say, but I like that. Okay, so how do you define, okay. define that? If somebody says this is evil, okay, it doesn't matter if it's the sadist, the masochist, or if it's a person that is normally right. Somebody has something that they think isn't right. Would it be the absence of God? Because if he holds well, things together and... It wouldn't be the absence of God. It would be satisfying, satisfying... Very close. 
any desire in a way that is contrary to what God has instructed us. Well, I wouldn't say that because what happened with Joseph? His brothers threw him in the pit, right? And he got taken down to Egypt, and what did he say to his brothers later? You meant it for evil, but God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So it was evil at one point, we think. It was sure evil to him. Evil, this is a very simple explanation of evil. Evil is the absence of a good thing. Very close to what you said. It's the absence of a good thing. If you think of this, you don't need to go any further. You have a car, and it's brand new, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and the metal is all there, right? And then you drive in the salt up north, and it corrodes a hole in the car. What is that hole? It's the absence of the metal, right? If the metal was there, then it wouldn't have a hole. But that is, the evil is, what we would perceive of as evil is the absence of a good thing. So anytime you have something, because a sadist is not going to say that's evil. There's no absence of good to him. But to somebody else, because the, the example you brought up is that Joseph thought it was evil when he was thrown in the pit, but the brothers thought it was good, right? One of the brothers, though, thought it was bad. Remember what he says? Now what am I going to do? So to him, it was, it was an absence of a good thing. So when we say, why does God allow evil? Where does that come from? It comes from our perspective of what is going on. God may be using that very bad thing, Johnny Erickson Tata, who I brought up a few weeks ago. He may be using that very same thing that somebody else thinks is evil for a good end. So we have to be careful to explain to people that evil is an absence of good in something. And it may not always be the same thing from this person to this person. Because that person thinks that's a good thing. Man, I put that hole in my car. It makes it go faster. I put a whole bunch of them in there, right? Well, then it's not a bad thing. So evil is an absence of a good thing, okay? And from there, then you can say, guess what? You don't want this evil anymore. Well, God sent us on to take care of it. Let me read you the last page of the Bible and take them there and say he has promised to make all things new. You will never have an, a lack of a good thing again. There will be no absence of that good when God restores all things. So that's, that's a, a very good way of handling that. Just remember rust in a car. It'll remind you that all it is is just an absence of a good thing. But that rust in the car may be something that somebody wants, right? It, it, it is perspective, okay? It's perspective. But yes, there is true evil in the world. But this brings us to another uh, thought is that there can't be absolute evil. Because if there was absolute evil, then God would not be in the mix. One of you said that a minute ago. If there is perfect evil even the devil must have something good about him he did right because if he was perfect evil then god wouldn't be in the mix at all but god created the devil just like he created us he stuck to his job he stuck to his job fully actuated potential like that's exactly right angel he, of light. <laughs> they what he looks like light. he looks like an angel of light but he's not yeah. that's that right in a fallen world yeah. but what about the adam before when he said this is good this is good this is good and later on he said this is not good okay adam said it is not good and so what was god doing god he was still that, that's right it's not good that man be alone right he wasn't finished with the day of creation it wasn't until the end of the sixth day that he said everything is very good so he was still in the process of creating and then when man fell we perceive all of the bad around us is evil because it is contrary to God. It is an absence of good, but it's being worked out for a good end. And God knew this. Hence, what is it? Revelation 13, 9? Is that what it is? Behold the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Right from the beginning, it was introduced to take care of everything that we perceive of as evil from the foundation of the world. Okay? Interesting. I mean, it's just, it, it, the Bible makes no mistakes. It is 
perfect in what it proclaims. We just have to think it through. We have to think sometimes even on a different level to understand why would God allow this to happen? Why would this thing that's so evil happen? Well, maybe he's using it for a good end, and he certainly will take care of it. If one thing that you can say to people when they talk about judgment, well, it's, why is it fair that that person goes to hell? Nothing that God does will be unfair. He is perfectly, yeah, he is perfectly fair in every single decision that he makes. Everything. He's perfectly fair. Okay, we got to go on because we, oh, not even halfway done with this verse. Um, okay, let me let me just read for a while. Um, let's see here. Um, I, I said that. Okay, Paul goes on by stating that their folly is and is even an attack against his eternal power and Godhead. Okay, the truth of God is denied, but the truth of God's plural is not. By their words and actions, they admit forces beyond their understanding, but when they but which are not ultimate in nature. They aren't the true God. However, the creation itself demonstrates that he is omnipotent, and it even gives us the ability to perceive the Godhead. The world is, uh, the word here is theo, 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 theoades. I didn't pronounce that very well. And it's speaking of his divine nature, the Godhead, his divine nature. We deny God, and we deny that he is God even though he proclaims himself in every aspect of the created order. And his response to their folly is found in the second psalm. Let me go there really quickly. Second psalm, verses 4 and 5. We just had the first three verses, and we go to psalm 2, verses 4 and 5. Oh, another second here. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 2, 4 and 5. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice. I'm sorry, I'm in psalm 3. It helps to be in the right psalm. Psalm 2, 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and in and distress them in his deep displeasure. And I'll read verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Okay? His wrath will come forth against them. And when it does, Paul says that they are without excuse. We've denied God. We've turned our backs on him. We've done everything possible to put him back in into a box somewhere and just forget about him so that we can exercise our own personal mores against him. And God laughs at that. He says, I will have my day of judgment. I was going to make a comment about a Hollywood actor, but, you know, it's just that you think of them. You think of they've got every single thing that they need. They've got all the money they need. They've got the good looks. They've got the job that's going to keep, keep them coming. And it's never enough. They're always getting divorced. They're always the one checking into rehab. They're the ones that are basket cases because it's never enough. It's never enough. And instead of just inviting God into the picture, they just keep pushing him away. They've got everything that they could want and they have nothing, right? And God is saying, have your own way. My, my day of reckoning is coming or my day of reckoning for you is coming. Anyway. Um, is that what derision means? Derision is to, it's, you know, yeah, derision is like, you think you've got it all and you've got nothing. I am in complete control of this, and you, you can ignore me all you want, but I hold you in derision. I hold you, I, I hate to use the word contempt, but it's kind of like that. You know, what, what does Jesus say about the wealth of the world? Um, uh, how did he say it? Uh, the, the things that uh, you th hold in high esteem, the Lord looks at as an abomination. And I know I misquoted that, but anyway, that, that's it, derision. That means nothing. You know, people driving around in their Porsche with the top down and they think they're the cat's meow. And God laughs at it. That's nothing. 
that is nothing compared to what we can have if we just put our trust in God, if we just put our hope in Him and look for the future and not in this world, which is just, like I say, that car in two seconds can be destroyed. You know, the nice looks can go. I know your bald, your head can go bald pretty quickly. So, but we don't, we don't think beyond the day. We never think beyond the day that God holds that in derision. When we look in faith to what God has provided, God holds that in esteem. So it would be the opposite of esteem. Anyway, his wrath will come forth against them. Paul says there with that excuse, he uses the word anapologetes, which is literally translated no defense. The ah always at the beginning of a Greek word symbolizes or signifies no. So you have the word um, defense, you have no defense. There will be no one to stand next to them to defend them because as rational moral beings, they are accountable to their creator. There will be no philosophical or logical argument, which is what all of these people are trying to make. You know, Stephen Hawking's and, and Descartes and who's the guy that said God is dead? Um, Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche, thank you. They have all these logical arguments which they know will fall flat. They know it. There's no such argument which will stand up against the source of all wisdom and logic. God is the source of it. He possesses all of it and nothing will stand against it. And there will be no thing that they can use in their defense because God is the creator of all things and therefore all things bear his mark of ownership. When Paul says they are without excuse, it means that they will stand completely and absolutely exposed before him. There will be no hope. Now think of that. I have this as my defense. Well, where did it come from? It came from God. You say, well, the DNA in my hand, I'm gonna use that as a defense, right? He created it. His signature is on it. There's nothing that we can use to defend ourselves against God who created all things. And therefore we must exercise our selves towards him. We have to, or we're working against him. And condemnation will come from that. And not just condemnation, you know what? That goes into uh, secondary condemnation. You've got the condemnation of the person that does never does not ever acknowledge God, but then you have the secondary condemnation of those who received Jesus but didn't live for him. And that would be the condemnation of rewards. In other words, a lack of rewards. So we're all going to face a certain amount of reward to get from God and we'll all face a certain amount of loss from God. Those who put their hearts and their minds and their souls and their directions on God all their life will receive more rewards. Those who don't will receive less, right? But I, I am firmly, firmly committed to eternal salvation. Some people like to use the term once saved, always saved, and then they deride it. Well, it is a true precept. That's all there is to it. God doesn't make mistakes when he saves people. He saves us despite ourselves. So anyway, um, let's go on. Um, uh, there, I've said that, and um, when Paul says they are without excuse, it means that they will stand absolutely exposed before him. There will be no hope. And then I will go on. As you look around you today, notice the wisdom and creativity of the Lord and all you see. Ponder it and give him the credit that he is due. Okay? That's, that's what we need to do. We need to ponder God's goodness. We need to think on it. We need him to give him the credit that he is due in all things. And I know I kind of rushed through that last few minutes, and now we still have another five minutes. But uh, And I'm not going to start another verse because we'll, it'll take too long. But uh, as far as... Questions. Might as well ask a question. I just went too quickly the last couple parts, and uh, I don't want to talk all day if you got a question about something that we talked about today. Okay. Here's one. okay. We were talking about creation, mm -hmm. and what amazed you most about creation on Earth? 
And I'm talking about the, the you know, the heavens. Okay. Like, I, I find it absolutely amazing how God created us, a person living 50 years. Right. The heart beats a billion times. Absolutely. He takes care of everybody's heart. Everybody's heart, and they say that it could fill a, a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. But now think of this. Think of this, seeing how you brought up our age. We live 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Just depends on how fortunate we are. That's up to 90 now. Okay, we live a certain amount of time. And think of the wickedness of some people on this planet after 40 years. How old was Hitler when he died? I think he was 54? 56, Okay. He was 56, and he started down that path at about 40 or somewhere around there where he really got control and he got power. Imagine when it says in Genesis 6 that the world was filled with wickedness when people were living to 900 years old. Think of that. And that's why God destroyed the entire world. There was no hope at all for those people. They had gone utterly corrupt, and he said, I'm just going to destroy the world. And then those wonderful words of Genesis 9, but... Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? He had grace on one person, part of his redemptive plans. There was no mistake in all of those people. They all had their chance. And here's something that you might not think about as far as uh, as far as far Adam. I'm so glad you brought up age. Age is one of those things that... <sighs> think of Adam. You talk about people with that excuse. My friend and I were talking a couple days ago. She was talking about... Um, uh, you know, reading the account of the Israelites and how they were taken through the Red Sea and then they saw his glory here and they received the man and they and then they made a golden calf after five weeks without Moses around, right? And as I said last week, all they had to do was look up because the cloud was still over the mountain, you know? But how could they have done that? But imagine this now. Here's Adam. And he lived 930 years. And you go through all these other people that were born and you get down to the last of these, actually it goes back a little further, almost until the end of those 10 generations before he destroyed the earth, almost all of them could have just gone up to Adam and said, were you really created? Yeah, yeah. right? They're all related. And they had hundreds of years of life to search that out and to say, well, gee, where is my great, 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 great grandfather right now? Most of them were still alive and all they had to do was go ask. And even a second generation, right? I go to my mom, okay? And I can say, well, tell me about grandpa. Or I could go to my grandpa because he was still alive and I could say, tell me about great grandpa. So even if Adam was gone when this guy was born, all he needed to do was go to his own dad and say, did you ever eat, ma meet Adam? Oh, yeah, I did. Was he really created? Well, he says he was. You know what I'm saying? Imagine how, if that is the case there, and if the people in the Exodus could turn away from God after all the things that he had done, and as I said during the sermon, what did they have that morning? before they had the feast to the... Yeah, they had manna. They had manna because it was provided, it says in Exodus 16, all the way for 40 years without without stopping. So they had manna that morning for breakfast, and then they went and danced on the same ground where they picked up the manna to a golden calf. So how is it that we can be so perverse? And that's exactly what Paul is writing about here in Romans chapter 1. He's saying that we know these things. We instinctively know these things, and yet we, we turn away from God. And we do anything to acknowledge him. We've got people in this country right now that were here, you know, during World War II. And they might be a professor or they might be the son of a professor or 
and they're denying the very things that we did at that time. Well, that you know, it, I just don't understand how quickly we can turn away from God and to see his hand in time and in the things that we do in this country. Yeah, we used to have the Bible in class. Well, you can't do that, separation of church and state. Well, why would you think that separation of church and state means you can't have a Bible in the class if you had one 40 years ago? Did separation between church and state not exist 40 years ago? That's how short our memories are. We just say, oh, well, we're not supposed to be doing these things, and we never check to see what was happening just a while ago. And that's what we need to do, especially with the Bible, is review what God has done. Well, then, Jim, they have Christian values. They say today that even though that was the law of the land, now you got Muslims, Hindus, right. Shinta. So we can't give all these things, so now they're even using that. But I also ask you here on this question, and at the end, when, when God closed the door on the ark and the rains came and destruction and the breaking up and all, right. the children who were... I'm just, just kind of wild, but throwing it out there above, before accountability, right. they perished too. Yes. Now would they have gone to? They would. They would have died physically, but would they go to a place not of torture or the? Uh, uh, you say, tell me. What does I, the, I don't know. What does the Bible say? There's a point in a man wants to die. Okay. That, but that's not Hebrews nine twenty seven. Right. But there was only eight individuals in that. But you're talking about the little babies that were born. That, yeah. Accountability. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, what does the Bible say about it? The only thing I can tell you, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going to happen. All it says is in 1 Corinthians 7.14, it says that a husband who is, a, or, or yeah, a, a believing spouse is not to leave an unbelieving spouse, ever. If they're married to an unbeliever, they're never to leave. But the believer can leave, they're not bound under that, okay? So... Why did he say that? He says because the children are sanctified through the believer. Otherwise, they are unclean. Okay? You decide what that means. I have my own opinion, and every time I say it, somebody gets angry, and you ask the question, but i got to tell you, I ain't answering it because every time I do, people ask the question, but they don't want to hear what the Bible says. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? I got you. That's just the way the world is. People ask questions and they don't want to hear. And when you give them the answer that you think is biblically sound, they get angry. And so I always, with that question, I let them decide. You tell me what that means. 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Why did Paul give that admonition? When the Lord said for Joshua to go in and destroy every living thing, including every Child. child. Why did he do that? Purge the area of okay. any kind of thing to eradication. Wickedness. Wickedness. Okay? That's the Lord's prerogative. As I said earlier, nothing that the Lord does will be unfair. Nothing. When he judges the people of the world, whether it's an old man or it's a baby that was born uh, aborted in the womb, okay, everything he does will be perfectly fair. All I know is what 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, and I'll let you decide on your own what that means. But Paul was very, very clear about that particular issue. Okay, It comes out of a discourse which is speaking of marriage. It's not really speaking of that, but he gives that precept for a reason. Okay. Anyway, that's something that I had a friend ask me the exact same question by email, and I said, I am going to, because it's an email, I'm going to give you my answer on that question. I said, if you get upset, I can't help you. It's just the way I read the Bible. But in a class of 20 or so people here, I ain't answering it. You go read 1 Corinthians 7.14. The Bible is not specific. Here's another one that people ask about. Dogs going to heaven, and I bring it up from time to time. The Bible is not about the redemption of dogs. The Bible is about the redemption of man. Okay, that's my answer. 
If you want to know what I actually feel, sometime we can go out to the beach and we can theorize all we want, but all I can do is that the Bible is about the redemption of man. What he does with those animals will be perfectly fair. It will be perfectly just, and there will be no unrighteousness in him. But those kind of questions are just better for you to ponder yourself, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say it either way. Okay, And because it doesn't, all we would be doing is theorizing and butting heads and getting angry at each other over it. And it's not worth it to me. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, the book of Romans. And uh, oh, it's good to have these people here today that have come to visit all the way from uh, uh, New Mexico and uh, from uh, Germany. And we also have some people that have come for the first time tonight who are so dear to my heart. And it's so good to see them here. And uh, I thank you for that. I thank you uh, just that you have allowed us to open your word and to search it out and to uh, uh, just to think about these things. And yes, a lot of it today was more philosophical than it was actually in the book of Romans, but it's things that we can use and we can think about and we can ponder these things and then we can apply them when we're speaking to others about Jesus. And that's the important thing is to be ready, Lord, to defend your word and to tell people why we have this hope in us. And so help us to process these things tonight and to think on your goodness and to think on who you are in your infinite being in relation to us and then to humble our hearts and our souls to you always. Help us not to walk in a manner which is contrary to you, but in a manner which is glorifying of you. And Lord, we'll be sure to give you thanks and praise for it until the day you call us home, whether through death or through the rapture, because we know at that time eternity really starts for us. And we'll be, uh, we'll be living in your presence in a way that we can't even perceive right now. And I thank you for that. Uh, pray for all the people that are watching live right now and also the people that may be watching on YouTube later, that they would be blessed in their hearts and in their souls and that they would be bold to speak about the glory of Jesus. The only hope that any of us have is Jesus. So we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. In his name, amen. All right, let me back this up and then please say goodbye to the folks online. And uh, there we go. Is that right? Right button. Okay, it's backing up a little bit. Okay, we love you. Have a wonderful week. You take care now. Bye-bye.